Welcome, everybody, to another episode of ICF's Public Health Enterprise podcast series. Uh, I'm Dave Spizer, Executive Vice President uh, for Strategy and Strategic Planning at ICF. Um, and I'm very excited to welcome my guests today. We have a trio of clinical leaders from the Nova Healthcare System. And rather than uh, me introducing them, I think I will ask them to introduce themselves. So, Steve, can you kick it off? Hi, everybody. David, thank you. My name is Steve Motu. I am the chief, comma, clinical enterprise at Innova Health System. I am a vascular surgeon by background and have the incredible pleasure of having worked at Innova Health System for the last 15 months in a role that partners me with some incredible team members, two of whom will be introduced in a moment and um, really have the oversight of our clinical enterprise. And for Anova Health System, the clinical enterprise represents all outcomes and operational components of our core business, which is delivering world-class healthcare to our communities. I am from Chicago originally. I um, am excited for what we've accomplished here at Anova in a very short period of time with our leadership team and for what sits ahead. Um, I also do have a background with um, having studied uh, in a master's degree with a focus um, on some components of public health as well. So I'm looking forward to discussing uh, this uh, today. Thanks. Oh, terrific. Uh, Maureen, could you introduce yourself? Sure, thank you, David. Um, I'm Maureen Sintich. I'm the system chief nurse exec for Innova Health System. I uh, represent over 6,000 nurses and another uh, couple of thousand uh, clinical technicians and am very fortunate to be a part of the system and also working in partnership uh, with my colleagues uh, Steve and Chappie, who you'll meet in a moment. Um, I've been with ANOVA now for three years. I am uh, passionate about the impact and influence that nurses make across the entire continuum of care, and certainly the health of our communities is an area of focus for us at ANOVA. So thank you. Great to be here with all of you. Thanks, Maureen. And uh, Chappie, last but not least. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Um, and thanks for um, uh, including me in, in, in this podcast. So my name is Chappie Venkatesan. I'm the Chief Quality and Safety Officer here at Innova Health System, going on about a year at this point in this role. But I've been with Innova since 2004, starting off as an internal medicine physician, working primarily in the hospital. And I feel that that background has given me uh, quite the lens on understanding um, what my role could be in, in being able to care for the patient uh, in their entirety um, across the continuum uh, that spans obviously outside of acute care. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm really happy to be part of this, um, this group, learning a lot from Steve and Maureen and um, uh, excited for our discussion. Great. Well, uh, thanks for joining me, all three of you. And just uh, 
for uh, total clarity uh, and, and just to eliminate any any uncertainty. I actually uh, know these three professionals. Uh, I play a volunteer role at ANOVA, and so um, uh, these these folks are not just leaders in the community, but they're they're uh, friends of mine and colleagues as well. So uh, thanks everybody for for joining. Um, Obviously, Innova is an incredibly important uh, healthcare provider in the Northern Virginia region. Uh, how do you all think about your role in public health as opposed to clinical care? And you know, Chappie talked about the uh, uh, you know care across the continuum of care, which uh, you know goes obviously beyond acute care in, in our facilities. But can you talk a little bit about how Innova views its role in public health and 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 how that comes about? Certainly. Um, ANOVA's primary role is in direct clinical care, but if I paraphrase our mission in that we provide world-class health care in all the communities that we have the privilege to serve, you know, the health of our community is, is critically important to us and how we provide care and our ability to make an impact. And so, you know, we believe that it's important to be involved in the community members' lives across the entire continuum of care, from wellness to the acute care setting as we transition um, back home. And, and so, again, the relationship between the health system and the community um, is contiguous and our ability to make an impact from that perspective. How, how does how does Inova uh, interact with the community in terms of wellness, right? So once once uh, you, you know someone either leaves the acute care environment or you know never never enters into it, how is Inova influencing kind of wellness of the community kind of beyond our facilities? Well, you know, we've created a network of both primary care and specialty practices and believe that everyone should have access to healthcare regardless of their ability to pay. And so whether it be um, community-based clinics that we've um, incorporated into our continuum of care or whether it be the house calls program staffed primarily by advanced practice providers and physicians um, where we are able to provide primary care um, for our aging communities in, in the home to um, assist them and, and support them so that they don't have to come back into the acute care setting. And really listening to the community members. We're learning every day from from those who serve on our patient and family advisory councils and what is important, what's most important to them and, and asking that question. And so we learn, um, we grow, we'll develop new programs along the way as we're meeting those needs. Yeah, David, this is Steve. I can, I can add a little bit to Maureen's um, um, answer to your question about you know wellness and um, a lot of that really depends on how we you know what what do we define as as wellness and well-being and we could probably talk for hours on just creating that definition as it relates to our communities and public health in general from you know some things I think we could talk about later with social determinants of health 
However, there is a point of view, particularly as a integrated health system, that a, a connectivity to um, general wellness as it relates to a primary care relationship is very foundational, uh, recognizing the challenges that some may have in establishing that relationship. Wellness really is rooted in, um, in, in, in that relationship. So our driving, one of our driving strategies is to um, create the opportunity to connect with um, a primary care uh, provider. And that can take all sorts of different flavors, whether it's a team of providers or a um, phar pharmacy tech who is, is assisting with medications to advanced practice providers such as nurse practitioners and PAs, and of course, to, to primary care physicians. And, and so to clarify that, um, that, that connectivity to wellness where we'll look at risk factors and you know, not just treatment, but prevention as well uh, is really rooted in the, in the ambulatory space. And I might um, just add just onto what Maureen and Steve had mentioned, just sort of round out um, some, of, some of that discussion. I think, I think that one of the things that you had asked, David, was, was, was around just kind of across the entire continuum. And to Maureen's point, the, the how we approach um, well-being in the community uh, before uh, a, a hospital episode but certainly even after a hospital episode, realizing that, um, that often these hospital episodes are either unavoidable or actually represent a failure um, in some form of the outpatient treatment, as Steve had alluded to, or it could be related to social determinants of health. And we really intentionally focused on after that um, hospital episode to really ensure that we have our eyes on how to, um, in a patient-centered way, transition patients from that acute care setting and really working on establishing a medical home in their, in their community. Um, we do have um, transitions of care clinics um, throughout the region, uh, as Steve started to allude to, that, that are staffed by a multidisciplinary team that can really, really help patients uh, get set up for success after a hospitalization and serve as a bridge before actually setting up an established primary care physician. Um, so just wanted to kind of add that to the conversation as well. Now, the idea, the idea of a medical home obviously is, it brings to mind, you know, some of the efforts that folks around the country have, have started on in terms of building, you know, more population-wide uh, efforts to, you know, ensure access and ensure that everybody you know, is getting some of that preventive care, right? Uh, obviously, we're all functioning in a, a, a very complex payments environment and, and uh, reimbursement environment. How then does Innova think about, you know, serving a, a broad population with, you know, a variety of uh, types and levels of coverage and, you know, some which may have an ongoing relationship with you and some which, you know, maybe has never uh, interacted with the Innova Enterprise before? First and foremost, because we're a mission-oriented organization that is rooted on, on providing care and wellness for our communities, uh, we um, 
Claire, want to be very clear that our commitment is to caring for patients regardless of their background and um, with regard to, to um, socioeconomic status and ability to pay and or their payer status. Um, so uh, that foundation really is um, core to, to how we devise our strategy of reaching out deep in, into our communities. We also recognize that the care delivery is very uh, much oriented in the communities that sit very close to our access sites. And in one regard, we have big access sites like hospitals and they're located in neighborhoods and neighborhoods make up communities. Um, Northern Virginia is uh, in some, some regards, um, you might look at it and think of it as being relatively homogeneous, middle-class uh, community, upper-middle-class community. And actually what we found out is the depths of uh, diversity in, in both background and socioeconomic status, um, race and ethnicity is, is very broad to, to what um, somebody may, may think to a generalization. And I think that that, that is true of, of almost all communities. Um, during the COVID-19 epidemic, this became even more obvious to us as we saw differential in how COVID-19 impacted different communities um, in, in, in each of our hospitals and also in some of the specific micro geographies surrounding them. Um, with the, the components also thinking about access is we understand how important it is to, to make sure that the healthcare is accessible to all aspects of our communities. And this drives some focus areas we have for um, partnerships with our, um, uh, our uh, federally qualified health centers, um, our distribution of um, language-focused, predominantly Spanish-speaking clinics in geographies that are accessible as well. And then finally, really, well, not finally, but also um, specific programs that are identified for higher risk populations. And, uh, you know, we can go into a lot of detail of some of those. One would be an example is our Nova Juniper program, which is a um, longstanding uh, clinic and multidisciplinary uh, program that's associated with HIV patients. So um, I think that's a little broader than what you might have asked, but it really is tied um, to, to, to the components of understanding our communities, the geographies and, and access. No, no, that makes perfect sense. The, that ties into the question you raised earlier. I might as well talk about it now, which is social determinants of health. Um, uh, in prior episodes, you know, our guests have, have talked about, you know, how integrally linked uh, health outcomes are with housing status, nutrition, uh, justice and equity, you know, transportation, and a whole range of, of the different so-called social determinants of health. Um, how... Obviously, you mentioned, you know, the the disparities that exist even within what, for those that don't live in Northern Virginia, might might view as a somewhat uh, uh, uniformly affluent area. But we all, those of us that, that live here, know that's not true. Um, how do those social determinants 
you know, connect with uh, the work that ANOVA does? What, what do you all have to do to kind of take those into account? And which, if any of them, can you have an impact on? I'll start this, but really um, uh, ask that, you know, Chappie and Maureen fill in the blanks. Um, it's uh, social determinants of health. If you look, as we know, when you look at the continuum of what drives sickness um, and what also promotes wellness, the vast majority of components are not uh, rooted in how we deliver healthcare today, which is focused on acute episodes in our facilities and uh, stomping out illness and sickness wherever we can. Uh, we're very good at, at we meaning both ANOVA and healthcare, uh, large healthcare systems in, in general. The genetic components play a very small role. Um, and the, the largest component, as you know, it, it, that drives outcomes of health are what we would put under the title of social determinants. And those are the broad components of um, environmental, um, cultural, um, access, socioeconomic, um, environmental um, uh, factors that impact humans. And so the, the short answer is, uh, we're relatively early in that journey um, and working towards trying to at least gain an understanding of how that affects our specific population. And one example would be um, starting to approach and enter uh, the conversation amongst our, our, our teams of just asking and understanding. So I, I think that's about um, how we begin that conversation. And then the next stages are really, you know, and this is a still an open question is, where does the line between um, skill set, resources, and responsibility sit um, uh, between a health system and social determinants, I think is, is wide open. And I'll, I'll ask, you know, Chappie to, to weigh in as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think I think the quote I heard from the Institute of Healthcare Improvement is there is no there's no quality without equity. And and you know, I think that we have been fortunate to be able to, um, as Steve described on this journey, really partner with the Institute of Healthcare Improvement and be a member of one of their leadership alliance subgroups regarding um, uh, social determinants of health and learning a lot through that partnership. Um, one of the one of the things that we do have in place is is a steering committee on the system level to help guide the work um, of our um, community health needs assessments. Um, and and one of those, um, you know, one of the goals is really starting with the basics and being able to actually obtain all the information on the front end to be able to understand the status of social determinants of health in our in our patients and our in our community members. Um, so certainly that is definitely a, um, you know, an initial step um, along that, along that journey. Certainly there's a very, very large realization about the impact of all of these determinants um, on, on our patients' outcomes. And I can tell you from the provider and nurse and remainder of the team perspective, um, this is the type of work that, that 
drives people at Innova that they, they get up in the morning and want to be able to participate in. Um, so we're really excited about uh, where we'll go um, next with this. And certainly, Maureen, I don't know what other stuff you would, you know, certainly want to add to this conversation. Well, I think, Chappie, thank you. Just building upon what you said, I, I, I think that we have and continue to learn um, not only from our communities, but from our own people and taking the advice from our um, diversity and inclusion council and learning from them about um, many of our communities that we serve. And as Steve said, asking the question, calling, calling the question and learning from our community members and allowing our team members to guide us through that process. It's been extraordinarily insightful and helpful. Well, I know that, that there, there are a number of, of uh, you know, pilot programs going on now to uh, you know, accelerate the dissemination of, of, of accurate information um, from Innova and from Innova providers right out into the, the communities. And I know some of that is uh, leveraging kind of general communications channels and some of them are leveraging kind of innovative channels like the specific categories of Innova staff. Um, turning our attention from the community to the, the, the other components of the public health enterprise. Um, how does a, a big regional provider and leader like Innova interact with you know, our, our local and state uh, public health officials? I mean, what, what are the connection points? What are the regulatory uh, uh, relationships and, and how, do, how are you guys connected to them? I, I could certainly um, start on that one. And I've, I've certainly become more familiar with this um, as we've progressed uh, during, during COVID. Um, but certainly I would say um, two things that, um, that have been really in place, I think, from a um, from a perspective of uh, interactions with our local and state health departments. Um, uh, one is that we do have uh, our uh, local health department medical directors. They they participate in our um, infectious diseases meetings across the system, and and that's certainly a really really um, good link to have. And then in addition. Um, we have representatives on um, statewide phone calls that started really in February regarding emergency preparedness and then ongoing response to COVID with um, the Virginia Department of Health and uh, VHHA um, as well. And VHHA is the? Uh, Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association. So I'm going to assume that Innova data is an important component of the uh, state data that I look at every morning. Um, how does ANOVA end up feeding information up to the, you know, say the Fairfax County or Northern Virginia or state of Virginia public health officials? Where does that data come from? How do you generate it? How does it get transmitted? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's, there's um, definitely multiple different aspects of that data that, that we share um, from um, things related to resources and availability of things like our supply of tests, supply of personal protective equipment, um, special resources such as ventilators or actual flat space and beds, um, as well as uh, uh, general information about staffing. 
And then in terms of more specifics related to results, um, certainly information about um, uh, rates of test positivity, number of patients who are hospitalized, um, and at what level of care, and number of patients who have been, um, who have been uh, healthily discharged from the hospital, and, and those who have unfortunately died, um, those are all certain data points that, that we share. Um, there is some component that, that is um, relatively automatic, um, but there are others that really do require a manual, um, manual um, uploading. Um, so we submit our data through, um, through VHAS, which is um, an emergency management extension of the state and, um, and also directly to HHS. Um, I think that in terms of some of our, um, some of the things that we've learned is that we've been able to uh, use our electronic health record to create um, reports that are relatively seamless for us to get information. However, to upload um, into the different required portals, uh, there has been some manual work, which which to me seems to be related to potentially the fact that there, we don't really have a common EHR framework across all the reporting bodies or any um, direct interoperability between all of those either. You know, several years ago, right, we had, we had the health uh, information exchanges and uh, those I know were stood up in part in Northern Virginia are those still operational? Do they play any role in this or have they been kind of overtaken by events? You know, David, I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I think I can speak to that a little bit more globally um, in that, as Chappie mentioned, the um, vision and sort of nirvana of true health information interoperability it has yet to be, um, uh, you know, realized at least in the degree that's necessary. In some ways, as Chappie mentioned, the automatic sort of upload of data through VHAS and and other like systems is a form of health information exchange. So, as in that regard, I think that there are bits and pieces of it in the public health realm from a true interoperability and sharing of information, which is absolutely the key, um, th there has yet to be identified, um, an, or, or I would say universal acceptance of standards to the degree that's necessary. And I think that's really a national um, challenge, meaning, um, you know, we, we've had a lot of conversations recently on the requirements for health transparency Internally at Anova Health System, we've taken and are promoting the approach of openness of records to patients and their and their families with immediate return of lab results, access to the notes, and we heavily leverage the tools that are built within Epic, which is our electronic health record, to facilitate that. And there are connectivities through the, through, for example, our signature partners, which is our clinically integrated network. However, it still requires um, third-party intervention to, to um, 
adhere or, or to, to share the information. So um, I, I think that it's, it's an opportunity and clear, clearly um, a gap. The, the, the provision of you know, healthcare information upwards, if you will, right, to aggregate it across uh, different you know, geographies and jurisdictions you know, is obviously critical to trying to make coherent fact-based decisions about public health. Um, do you all get information back down the other way from the system? Uh, you know, maybe it's, it, it may not be as, as urgent. I know you probably, you, you get updates from CDC and other places, but do you get kind of population-wide uh, health status, you know, population health data back down from uh, state officials or federal officials on, you know, trends in wellness and, uh, uh, you know, chronic disease status and various population health metrics, or, or is it up to you to kind of turf those out from other sources? You know, this is Steve again. I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I, I think that there are data sources that um, are available. I, I don't know that all of them um, are, you know, we're, we're very data hungry as an industry in general. Um, and the consolidation or the availability of data from some of the sources that uh, Maureen and Chappie mentioned, whether it's through um, you know, state resources and or uh, other federal related, um, as you mentioned, CDC and so forth, it, it's there and, 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 and we, we access it uh, regularly in some cases and probably not enough in others. Um, I do think once again, the lack of general consistency in availability of that data is, um, is, is something that we're uh, acutely aware of. Um, the, the sharing of, for example, uh, where I think, I think we did and continue to extract benefit are on some of the predictive modeling that's associated with COVID, for example, that are being run um, from several sort of convener sources that we have access to. And, and the value to, to us in pulling, pulling that data, as opposed to, you know, not, not much, if any of it is actually, you know, pushed in, a, in an analytic me mechanism, but, but we've used that pretty extensively to help with our own modeling as well. I guess I would also say that in addition to the quantitative data that we have submitted and also um, what data we have received, we've also received um, significant qualitative feedback through uh, resources and alliances and partnerships within the state as well as nationally. And those resources and what we learned contributed to our ability to um, to redesign care almost real time as we were preparing for the care of the COVID patient, recognizing that we needed to increase capacity, recognizing that we had to um, be able to um, extend our flat space, if you will, to design and uh, incorporate additional critical care beds that information came to us in a way that we were able to um, train uh, critical care nurses relatively quickly. 
uh, respiratory care extenders, um, add nearly 300 additional uh, negative pressure rooms to be able to provide the care for these patients across the system. And so I don't want us to um, underestimate the impact that that information had in our ability to extend care and services to our communities within Northern Virginia. How would you characterize, Maureen, in, in, that, in that context, right? And I know, uh, you know, personally sitting in every morning on the stand-up meetings during the height of the, uh, the pandemic response that, you know, how much of that real-time learning was going on. Um, it was a great kind of window into the functioning of a kind of high-performing healthcare system. Uh, if I put myself in the shoes of a smaller community hospital somewhere else in the country, um, I mean, it sounds like it would, I would have to take kind of similar actions to the ones you all took uh, to get that same level of insight and that same level of information sharing. Uh, because it sounds like there, as Steve said, there's no, there's no automatic flow down kind of push of information to you. You're, you're seeking it out and participating in it. And you've contributed to it, I know, in the learnings around uh, some of the advanced uh, learnings that have, that have happened in the Inova system. Um, if I'm sitting, if I'm the you know chief nursing officer at a, a small community hospital somewhere else in the country, um, do I have to replicate everything you all did as a system to get that same information? No, um, you know there, the accessibility to information was significant through through our various professional organizations. So whether it be, you know, the American Nurses Association, the American Organization of Nurse Leaders, just using nursing as an example, there was information readily accessible. I think the challenge is to be able to focus and take the time to comb through the information to ensure that the information that you're receiving is um, appropriate for your organization, for your patient population, and then the ability to take the steps to implement whatever it is that you are working through. You know, I think the, the nationally healthcare, um, healthcare executives and leaders, we're a pretty tight-knit group, and we're very open in how we um, work together across the spectrum, across the continuum. And um, what I was uh, you know, so um, gratified in was how open those that had gone before us, for example, colleagues in New York and New Jersey, New Orleans and Seattle, who were open to sharing, again, almost in real time. And it was, it was an incredible experience and, you know, a situation that we know we, you know, the world has only experienced uh, every hundred years or so. And so, um, you know, the learnings and in our ability to document what we've learned will be very important for those who come behind us. What about, so you talk about uh, connecting with, with other 
uh, institutions kind of around the country who are kind of all learning real time. What level of connectivity do you all have with your fellow providers in the area, right, who are part of different, different corporate entities? Uh, is that done through, you know, kind of local and regional public health officials? Is that, are there informal connections? I'm, what if any connections kind of exist? Yeah, I think, I think that there's, it's multi-channel. So, um, and, and it's almost hard to remember uh, what those are like on an ongoing basis outside of a healthcare crisis. And I think part of what we've learned during this pandemic is, um, you know, where, where we need to augment that connectivity when we're not in a healthcare crisis. Uh, we're really good when there's a, a major problem. And um, so uh, at its foundational level, there is very close connectivity to um, and, and cross communications to other health systems in the region as it relates to county-based healthcare needs assessments. So we share um, the commitment to our communities, which um, in, in particularly in most areas are, are which is which is a reflection of uh, county health uh, focuses that go back you know decades and decades if not longer um, to to uh, treating the communities and the healthcare needs assessments that is um, driven you know collaboratively between the healthcare systems and the county health departments. Uh, allows one method of communicating and aligning on strategies, uh, sharing data, identifying problems, and then committing together to focus from the county as the convener. So that that's really important. And through that, there is regular conversation, collaboration, and, and alignment. Uh, the, the next is through um, shared uh, um, state level and or regional level healthcare organizations. The Virginia Hospital and Healthcare Association, VHHA, would be one example. Um, there are several others that are aligned with emergency management, VHAS, and uh, several, several other um, sort of region, you know, re regional both connected both to federal emergency management as well as, as statewide. Um, the next level then really is starting to get more and more dispersed and diffused into local chapters of um, national healthcare organizations. And those are everything from the ones that we know right away, which is, you know, Red Cross, for example, would be one that comes to mind, where um, we'll all sit at the same table. And then it gets even more uh, um, distributed when we start to think of sub subspecialty as an example. So the local, a local um, a, a nurse uh, uh, group and or uh, the local American College of Surgeons or uh, American Association of Family Practitioners and so forth, or family practice. So, um, and then finally, how do we interact with other health systems, both regionally and nationally, are through uh, some public, mostly private um, uh, organizations that are collaboratives. 
and and those are very broad. However, interestingly, the number of times that um, I've personally walked into a, a national health collaborative that might look at progressive health systems or large, they might they might distribute it based on size. Um, you actually look across the table. You're like, hey, you're also in the same market I am. So um, it, the, the, there's plenty of opportunity. I think most of the real public health components are mostly addressed with the county health departments as um, as the convener. One of the one of the learnings from the discussions we've had so far is that the the you know county level public health leadership is you know what in my old consulting days we would have called the critical job in public health, which is the the place where it all comes together, where you know it either calls, all comes together or all falls apart. And we, we've certainly seen in the uh, at the, the early stages of the pandemic, you know, a huge variety of approaches and attitudes and just sheer velocity, right, in terms of dealing with the, the issues. Um, there must be a big difference between running a provider uh, or, or even practicing in a jurisdiction with kind of forward-looking and kind of aggressive public health leadership and one where maybe that, that same description doesn't apply. Have you had any direct experience? Obviously, you know, Northern Virginia is kind of well, uh, well taken care of in that regard, but have, have either in kind of prior areas of practice or experience, have you seen that those kind of that kind of fragmentation and disparity kind of come to life? A tough question. That's why we probably all got silent waiting for the other one to answer. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll pump that a little bit into a broader generalization of some of the gaps that can occur. Um, and, and most of it um, to me is uh, how, how do we assure that uh, we, we, we remain aligned to, to the high level goals? And, and in, in those, in my experience, where, where the challenges come is where the expertise and strategic focus areas of a health system um, may be more, either more specific, usually more specific than the focus areas uh, that the public health, uh, you know, county level public health may, um, uh, you know, what, what their priorities are. Um, and I think that that's a reflection of the different lenses. So if you think about a county level um, a set of responsibilities, it's very broad. It's from uh, water to policing to um, um, uh, you know all, also uh, uh, integrity of, of business and zoning practices and public health so the lens that is brought there is from that perspective and I think that that's really important and then if you look at it from the healthcare systems point of view we're thinking about um, acute care and the sickest of the sick, and um, the infrastructure required to deliver that care, 
And so I think, you know, my experience has been, and this is not indicative of, of, of any one area, is that um, how do we make sure that the intersection points are, uh, take that in, into account? So we might all, um, we for sure would say that we need to approach obesity as a problem, for example. There's, there's, that, that's not, at least from my perspective, non-controversial of a, of a public health challenge. So um, the approach from a large health system uh, would be along the spectrum of wellness and primary care and medical treatment and risk avoidance and then management of the obesity through multiple measures and then treatment of the complications thereof. From a public health perspective, it would be, you know, what are the access to appropriate foods in, in a neighborhood or um, uh, safe access to um, exercise and um, green space. And so here you have, once again, the same focus point being on elevated BMIs and obesity, yet um, a, a challenge in that we're each going to see, you know, a different part, you know, take a bite or feel a different part of the elephant. And that's where sometimes, um, and we, we all uh, talk about this very openly, um, the approaches will be different. Uh, and sometimes the goals will be slightly different. So, uh, you know, to, to sort of take that um, to your question, which is where do we see that, that fragmentation? I think that that might be a little bit more where we see it, but there's much more alignment than not. Well, that's good news. That's good to hear. Um, the last point, and it, it connects with something uh, that both Maureen and Chappie have mentioned. Um, you know, we talked about capacity. Uh, the term flat space, I, I, find, I always find intriguing in the context of a healthcare institution. Um, the, during the, the early um, growth phases of the pandemic here in Virginia, obviously, uh, and you know, different places around the country, certainly capacity was a major concern for planners. And um, I know that Inova had talked actively with the state of Virginia about increasing capacity, and eventually the state uh, had set up and then fortunately was able to not implement uh, plans to use, um, you know, various kind of public spaces like convention centers, et cetera, for uh, as emergency, you know, locations to expand uh, acute care capacity. Um, what, what actions did Inova take or contemplate uh, to maximize capacity in the, in the event that it was, it was needed? I mean, fortunately it turned out it, it wasn't, but uh, what what steps did you all uh, take to kind of plan for such an eventuality? Well, we did look at bed spaces that could be um, very appropriately used for patient care. And areas, for example, in the ambulatory space that was not currently being used for ambulatory patients and could that space be used and converted into acute care space. Um, and so that was a process that, you know, I think all of the health systems in the nation went through to make that determination to determine, you know, where could patients be appropriately and safely cared for? And then what would the staffing needs be to be able to meet the demand of the patient volume 
And so that was a, a work that was done across ANOVA and in some cases, and I had mentioned previously about expanding the uh, ability to have negative pressure to reduce uh, the risk of spreading of the droplets or the aerosolization for the um, patients who had the um, COVID infection. And so we did expand our non-negative pressure rooms into cre the creation of additional negative pressure rooms, which also did impact our ability to extend care um, and to extend our critical care beds, because that's where we really saw the need um, to be able to expand care for these patients. The only other thing that I would that, that I would add on top of that is it, it did also cause us to um, come together as a system really quickly to understand um, across the system rather than at each hospital itself, where all the patients were, where are the surges happening and how can we adapt um, accordingly through a daily um, a capacity management call on the system level, which I think was a pretty cool um, innovation that, that will definitely endure um, after COVID is gone. And another example that, that was pretty interesting for, for me to learn from was, you know, we do have a, um, a post-acute care facility, uh, Loud Nursing and Rehab Center, and what we realized was that there were a lot of patients who were ready to be released from acute care, yet did not have a post-acute care to go to. And actually there was, as Maureen had talked about, some space being unused on the campus of Loudoun Hospital that was able to be um, temporarily repurposed into a post-acute care um, setting uh, where we, allowed, we were able to uh, move those patients for them to be cared at the right level of care so that we could actually um, have our staffing in the acute care setting be dedicated towards taking care of those the sickest of the sick so it was just one example of how i think we were pretty adaptable during the pandemic um, to, to meet the needs of our community and and the last question i have before we wrap it up is is you know maureen talked about staffing um, I know from uh, other conversations in the podcast series that this issue of kind of rapid credentialing has been an important part of the response to the pandemic. Um, can you just say a few words just about how ANOVA has kind of participated in that uh, whole kind of flex of the system in terms of providing rapid credentialing to providers uh, that you know, historically might have taken a longer time because it's from my own involvement in the credentialing process, I know how involved it, it is under normal circumstances. Yeah, um, uh, I'm happy to, to um, uh, take this one, David. We um, first and foremost started with, as Chappie mentioned, um, a very uh, clear data-driven approach to capacity management on the team member side. And this, um, as, as you allude to, on the physician practice side requires a, uh, there's a requirement and a, uh, for a governance process that 
assures appropriate, safe, licensed professionals, um, uh, and now we're just focusing on the physicians, um, can gain privileges through a credentialing process to provide that care. Um, there are a couple things that were put in place progressively at ANOVA over the last year or so, which has been a more decided approach to um, sort of baseline privileging that can be shared amongst the different hospitals, particularly knowing that in today's world, the general governance still holds roots at each care delivery site. Um, and and that's, that's a combination of regulatory requirements and um, go governance requirements. So um, we, so first identify the need. The second is um, identify where the sources of uh, practitioners are. And it was pretty darn phenomenal during uh, the early parts of the COVID-19 pandemic, the number of individuals who rose to action and volunteered um, far, far exceeded our need. Now, we didn't know that at, at the time, but um, those who had not had privileges uh, before, those that had um, reduced their privileges because of change in practice or retirement, um, cross cross privileging, cross-credentialing. So um, that, was, that was a requirement. All, all, all of us um, have trained in different realms and that expands from both nursing and physicians at some point in our career. So we wanted to leverage that experience if needed. And the um, combined understanding that we, we really could only uh, succeed by thinking like a system and putting away the thoughts of, well, what makes us different at any acute care site or care delivery site, as opposed to a philosophy, which was really, really, um, uh, uh, you know, heartwarming to say, how can we be more alike? So um, as you may be aware, aware, our process allows for governance at the system level for the ultimate approval of privileging. So um, we initiated that and uh, uh, put in place an expedited, but no, what I believe is no less safe system. Now, the only caveat to that is that we were working on time pressure. So um, uh, we, it really just caused us to speed up our normal processes and be moderately liberal, not in um, a, safe, uh, a less safe environment, but in um, uh, uh, prioritizing individuals based on where they've been. So for example, we know that there are some who have privileges at one of our care delivery sites and not another. So that was almost an easy one. Since we're one system, we said, okay, these individuals can now go between site to site. So that, that, was, uh, that required almost no process, just approval. And then there are some who are, well, I'm a critical, I'm a surgeon at one site or, or an advanced practitioner at one site uh, focusing on surgery, but, but I can also help in critical care doing certain duties. So that was sort of the next one that like skills, but still in the system. And then the last one was uh, uh, shoring up our background team 
to run individuals through the process quicker and in a more consolidated fashion. And what we found was um, that we were able to get the help we needed, that we didn't need to go uh, as deep as we thought we needed to go. And now uh, we've actually learned uh, on how to make ourselves a much more facile. And um, really, um, as the privileging credentialing has dropped off, as the need has dropped off, we really have, has, haven't run into any, any uh, issues um, as of right now. So that's kind of long-winded, but um, it, it's been a real success story, I think, uh, particularly for, our, for Inova. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the lesson from so many of these, these different attributes, right, is that there's, uh, there's things that you only are really forced to learn during, you know, an exceptional period of stress and, and uh, anxiety and, and extra effort that, you know, hopefully we can maintain, you know, as part of the system kind of going forward. Um, I, I really want to thank my three guests, Steve, Chappie, Maureen, for joining us here and giving us a window into how uh, the Innova Health System uh, has been viewing some of these critical challenges during this most interesting year of 2020 um, and for giving us some insight into how they support the, the broader extended public health enterprise, which is you know, the topic we've been talking to everybody about. Um, my thanks. Uh, to all three of you. And uh, with that, I think we'll wrap it up for this week. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.